Welcome one and all to Mapping the Timeline, episode 7 of our HIPS podcast. Incidentally, today is first folio day, when the first recorded sale of Shakespeare's completed book was bought by Sir Edward Deering exactly 400 years ago on 5th December 1623. Deering bought not one, but two copies. Well, if you're new to our little podcast adventure, we take a look at all things Christopher Marlowe post-1593, when he was supposed to have been very dead. Guiding us on our little audio sojourn are Dr. Peter Hodges and Carol Paxton. Hello to you both, and thank you for being here. Hello. Hello. In this episode... I'd like to explore the sonnets a little more in terms of the timeline of the so-called correspondence. The letters from sonnets 37 to 77 appear to show some semblance of loneliness, of separation and distance. Peter, if we resume the assumption from our first series that the sonnets are basically a series of letters, do you think that this sequence describes our dear Kit's journey from when he is exiled to the European continent? Well, I do. I I, I want to point out that this is these sonnets, 37 to 77, is are the ones we're focusing on. These 40, 41 sonnets, they take place in a period of some five years. And so there's going to be a lot that goes on. They don't all compress into a single theme. What we have are a series of themes that he returns to and reconsiders uh, over this period of years. So the first thing I want to say is that we're going to be jumping around in and out of here in these five years to see how he handles these themes. But you should note that for the most part, these themes are contained within this particular five-year space. So the first thing that I want to pick up is, yes, this idea that he's separated from the person to whom he's writing or the persons to whom he's writing. And he makes a number of comments on that theme in particular. We look at sonnets 50 and 51, we suddenly find him talking about a journey that he's taking and how much he regrets it. So in 50, he's talking about how heavy do I journey on the way when what I seek my weary travels end doth teach that ease and repose to say thus far the miles are measured from my friend. And then we continue with 51 and he says, Thus can my love excuse the slow offense of my dull bearer, when from thee I speed. From where thou art, why should I haste me hence? Till I return of posting, there is no need. So he's 
talking about riding a horse away from his love. And this is a set of sonnets that has followed within this time frame after he has made his departure from London, which concluded with Sonnet 36. So this would then speak of what he's occupied with, one of which is traveling away from his love. Another part of it that we can point to in this that sort of reaffirms this from the outside in is the fact that there are a number of couriers who are in the vicinity. They're in the Netherlands and they're in and around Flushing. So we have Poli on the one hand, who has been doing courier services for Lord Burley, and he's paid for it in 1594. And then later we find Thomas Drury, who was one of Marlowe's I won't say accusers, but Drury was a go-between in the mix of all the accusers. And Drury was the man who was writing to Lord Cecil while in jail, hoping for some form of employment. And he succeeds in being hired by Burley to act as a courier in the Low Countries in 1595. So we have two people who know Marlowe well. We have Marlowe talking about a journey uh, during this period of time. And during that same period of time, we have couriers working back and forth across the channel. Now, all of this is somewhat circumstantial, but I want to point out it all fits within the timeline. And as long as we're not finding evidence that violates the timeline, I think we have to consider that it's consistent. That's step one as we probe into this group of sonnets. I think as well, we might see a sort of progress in his, he, he explains um, why dost thou promise such a beauteous day. And I think there we might as well, might be seeing some evidence that when Marlowe left for the continent, he was actually not really aware of what had happened in in London, in Deptford, and that he left under the thought that he was simply going to vanish from London for a while and then come back. And I think what we see in the sequence that you've been talking about is a gradual and, quite frankly, horrified realisation that actually he wasn't going back. I think that's very much part of the story here, that a lot of what was done in order to save his life, if you will, was done on the spur of the moment without a real fully developed plan. The notion that they would substitute someone's name, that probably was something that they thought they would only have to do one time. And they may very well all have thought that they could indeed bring him back. But there's something here that really addresses that. And I wanna bring our attention to that. This is in Sonnet 49. This precedes the two where he talks about traveling away. And in Sonnet 49, he addresses the question of what can he do about his situation. He appears to acknowledge a legal barrier against whatever it is that the impediment would represent. So he says, against that time when thou shalt strangely pass, and scarcely meet me with that sun, thine eye, 
when love converted from the thing it was shall reasons find of settled gravity against that time do i ensconce me here where is here we wonder with the knowledge of mine own desert and this my hand against myself uprear to guard the lawful reasons on thy part to leave poor me thou hast the strength of laws since why to love i can allege no cause so if we're assuming that he's crossed the channel and he's writing back to the person who sent him there, who promised him that beautiful day, and now he's realizing, whoa, I have been proclaimed officially dead by the queen's own coroner. That's a legal barrier that's going to be very hard to cross. The coroner is not going to pull my body out of the grave. So the problem now presents itself in its fullness to someone like Marlowe. And again, this sticks to the timeline. This sticks to the idea of his becoming aware of the depth of his situation and the, the, the near impossibility. Of course, he never gives up hope. But nonetheless, uh, there it is stated, there's a legal impediment. Now, some might also say there's other reasons for this legal impediment, but I'm going to say that a prominent one certainly would be if the Queen's coroner had declared you dead, you better not be walking the streets of London. <laughs> Assuming that Marlowe was still working for Thomas Walsingham or that Thomas Walsingham was still his patron, had anything changed after he left for the European continent? Was Marlowe still working for Walsingham? Do we have any evidence of that? Well, we know that he wrote The Rape of Lucrece, which was published in the spring of 1594. I believe that was a commissioned poem, which was, again, intended to make some remarks toward uh, Southampton about his dalliance with Essex. And in Lucrece, one would compare Lucrece to... England. It was very popular at the time to compare England to Rome. And of course, Lucrece's rape is a signal event in the end of the Roman Republic and the onset of tyranny. So to give a poem like that, which strangely follows Venus and Adonis, which is this delightful sexual frolic, uh, you then turn around and hand over what is a warning against sex itself, I suppose, but also against a particular person, an individual who may be considered tyrannous. And if you're handing this over to Southampton, at the end of a campaign, which has deliberately been staged in order to prevent Southampton's alliance with Essex, which ultimately failed, but nonetheless, this stands as a pretty clear warning against it. So Marlowe, yes, was definitely, if he is the author of Lucrece and certainly in my mind he is, then he's working for Walsingham and Burley at the same time, making one more last plea to Southampton not to fool around with this Essex guy who has no good plans for him. And unfortunately that failed. And subsequently he then continued to write plays. And we know that, you know, he wrote 
Comedy of Errors, which was then produced at Gray's Inn when it was time for Southampton and Burley to kiss and make up because Southampton had by that time turned 21 and he was his own man and Burley couldn't force him to marry his granddaughter anymore. Right. Carol, do you think the sonnets show any of this evidence? If we're saying that they are a series of letters, do you think they sort of show that he's continuing to do the bidding of Walsingham? I think I might prefer to say Cecil rather than Walsingham, but that's only a quibble. Well, I think mostly, as Peter said, in in the sonnets, there is this realisation that he is actually stuck in exile, that it isn't just a a gobble for two years and it'll all blow over and then you can come back and everything will be wonderful again. And he hasn't reached the depths of despair that he does in some of the later sonnets, which we haven't got to yet, where he begins to sound, quite frankly, suicidal at times. There is still always that hope that things can be patched up, he can turn up in London and, oh, it was all a terrible mistake. But as Peter said, he is also realising that, in fact, that he is officially dead, there has been an official inquest, is making that almost impossible and that he really is stuck. Yeah, now there's another set of sonnets that also deal with this issue of separation. And there are more of them even than there are of uh, the ones that we've spoken about so far. These sonnets address the idea of where is he? And what are the physical conditions of where he is? He talks about being across the water. At one point in Sonnet 56, he says, let this sad interim like the ocean be, which parts the shore where two contracted new come daily to the banks that when they see return of love, more blessed may be the view. And he also addresses this situation as a period of time, which, of course, as days went by and his hoped-for reprieve never came to pass, that became a bigger issue. So here he is in 63 saying, against my love shall be as I am now with time's injurious hand crushed and o'erworn. By 63, if we're thinking it even loosely on a timeline, we must be some three years beyond where he was when he left London, somewhere in, I want to say, 1596 or seven. And he's beginning to wonder, is this ever going to work out? He's probably by this point made a couple of attempts to come back. And he, in 65, how shall summer's honey breath hold out against the wrathful siege of battering days when rocks impregnable are not so stout, nor gates of steel so strong, but time betrays? He just can't get and then here comes 60, which combines both these themes, time and the separation of water. So, like as waves make toward the pebbled shore, or so our minutes hasten to their end, each changing place which goes on before, in sequent toil, all forwards to contend. And then perhaps if uh, we, we reach 66, which is probably the first of the ones where th there is a note of, as a suicidal yeah. despair. 
Tired with all these, for restful death I cry, as to behold desert a beggar born. An art made tongue-tied by authority, tired with all these, from these I would be gone, save that to die I leave my love alone. And he, he really is. He really has reached a sort of bottom by the time we get to yeah. 71 and 72. He's certainly threatening in his verse, you know, to do something awful to himself because he feels so, so alone and so separated. And at this point, if we're really working towards the publication of Hero and Leander, which came as a surprise to him, you know, the downward spiral of three and a half, four years. Uh, living presumably in Flushing or somewhere nearby, but never crossed the channel, really would get to a lot of people, and he's no less than that. Well, 71, or if I say you look upon this verse when I perhaps compounded am with clay. And I do wonder sometimes whether that clay is Marl, which would make a, a pun on the name Marl I, Marley, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, and that he's, uh, say, playing with his own name there. And just, but it is that to one side. Sonnet 71 is pretty desperate. Yes, it's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. I just want to go back a little when you said that during his time away, he wrote a comedy of errors, which premiered at Gray's Inn. What other plays do you think he might have written during this time? Well, I think he wrote a series of pieces that were intended to be performed in the holiday period, which would be most propitious for his returning. People would be at their most forgiving, and there might be a chance where he could conceivably remind them of his skills as an entertainer and give them very good reasons to want to forgive him. So Comedy of Errors would have been the first of those. And of course, It's not very hard to make comparisons at this point in time with the appearance of Willem Shakespeare in Marlowe's shoes. And Comedy of Errors really does seem to take a pretty clear nod at all of that. In the upshot of Comedy of Errors, it actually became known as the Night of Errors because there was a problem with the staging of the play. Now, this following year, they did Love's Labor's Lost. The assumption inside of Love's Labor's Lost is actually a recounting of what happened on the Night of Errors. They have the dance of the Muscovites, and the Muscovites are all members of Lord Burley's Muscovy Company. So at the end of this, they say, we shall meet again a year and a day after we have performed this dance. Well, Believe it or not, Love's Labor's Lost was performed a year and a day after a comedy of errors. So those two are linked. And I would say Marlowe is in both cases making attempts to put forward comedies that are very self-referential and very the comedy itself is very clear to the people who were alive at the time, but not so much to us now unless you put the context around it. He's making an attempt to return, and this would have been winter of 1595, and it fails. And then he ends up back in Flushing, and by the time we get a year later, no one's inviting him to do another play, and he's near suicidal. So would he have written mainly comedies at the beginning to try and ingratiate himself back into the English society of the time? 
Well, those would have been for the court, but there were others that, like Richard II, which was another one of these warnings against Essex, which I think was, I won't say a command, but it was certainly something that followed on Lucrece as, you know, somebody who's plotting against a weak king who then puts the king to death. And this became a favorite amongst those who were agitating against the queen. Well, yes, because I think we have to look at the background. By the mid-1590s, Elizabeth was uh, an old woman, really, and the question of the succession remained unresolved. Um, She refused to discuss it, and although we know Cecil especially was making plans and eventually settled on James VI as the likely successor, there was effectively by at that stage not everything to play for, but there was certainly more than one person who could have succeeded her. The Earl of Derby, for example, had a, had a claim. The Greys had a claim. There was no clear heir to the throne. And I think for all people like Cecil, who were very concerned with the future of England as a country, and we do have to remember it was almost a very small country, very much an offshore island from Europe, not a particularly wealthy country at that stage, that the future of England as an independent kingdom was very much in the balance. And that if there was no clear succession after Elizabeth, if it descended into feuding in the way it had in the Wars of the Roses, there was a very real risk that possibly France, possibly Spain would seize the opportunity and simply move in and conquer it. Yeah, and it was interesting to me that Essex and Burley both essentially preferred James to take the throne, but they, in advancing that cause, got more or less in each other's way as to who was going to continue on to be the Secretary of State. Burley definitely wanted to pass the reins off to his son Cecil, and uh, Essex obviously wanted it to be himself. And so not only do we have the succession of the throne, but we have the issue of who is to be the chief advisor to the crown. So it's not as if you can settle everybody's hash just by one name. You've got a whole panoply of of other people that you bring along, the entire court, really, to figure out who's going to get primacy in the midst of all of this. And that became a huge distraction and I think really was a larger issue than at the end of the day, they didn't have much choice other than James. You know, they they didn't have a native pretender. They had to go to Scotland as much as they disliked the idea, because otherwise they were going to end up marrying somebody off to Abella. Someone in Spain, yeah, or the the docent or something, yeah, and it was not going to be pretty. In many ways, Arbella had the best claim, because when one reading, James had no claim at all, because he was already the crown monarch of another country, uh, Scotland. But I think Burley had come to the conclusion that if Arbella became queen, then firstly, the problem when Elizabeth became queen of who is she going to marry would repeat itself. And secondly, I think he might have felt that Arbella, although she was obviously a very intelligent and intellectually gifted woman, 
she does appear to have suffered from something which might have been an eating disorder or some other illness. And she certainly does seem to have been quite fragile emotionally. Perhaps that was partly a result of the way that she was treated as thinking, oh, you're going to marry yeah. X. No, you're going to marry Y. No, you're going to marry Z. Well, she, she didn't have the steel that Elizabeth yeah. had. Exactly. And, and exactly. so she would have been manipulated. And if you look at James, uh, honestly, his tenure was a disaster too. I mean, he went well, from one boyfriend to another that pretty much bollocks everything. And is that not the exact subtext of Edward II? <laughs> yes. I, I really love the Derek Jarman film. I think it's it's an artistic triumph. But unfortunately, it's made everybody think that Edward II is all about uh, Piers and Edward and their thwarted love affair. Right. Whereas, in fact, if you look at it in terms of when it was written, it is quite clearly holding a mirror up to James of Scotland and his current... I think that would probably be Esme Stewart at that stage, but well, it wasn't Robert Carr. No, he came later. There yeah, was somebody. But, yeah, but the current boyfriend yeah. fits anyway. The, the Garveston part because that is exactly what happened with James, both in Scotland and then when he came to become a king of England. His current favourite had a huge influence, and he exactly is the way that Edward does with Piers. He showered his favourites with money, with titles. Well, the play, as I say, is a very much holds a mirror up to James of Scotland. But on the plus side, from the Cecil point of view, boyfriends notwithstanding, he had a wife, he had two sons, so there was potentially a secured succession. There are a couple of things that make it clear that Marlowe is, in fact, or whoever's writing the sonnets, is, in fact, doing things as assignments, that the writing that is being produced during this period of time and a lot of the things that we've been discussing being Comedy of Errors, Richard II, the other Tudor plays that he polished up, Henry, these would have been jobs that he was given in order to make the case that it's worth keeping him around. Whether or not this brings him back, time will tell, but I think he's certainly putting out his best effort. And he says in 38, even very quickly after he's on the other side of the channel, he says, if my slight muse do please these curious days, the pain be mine, but thine shall be the praise. And then later on, he goes on to say, being your slave, this is now 57, what should I do but tend upon the hours and times of your desire? I have no precious time at all to spend, nor services to do till you require. So he's there, ready to go. You tell me what you want me to do. And if it's composing plays, I'll do that. That was the best he could do for himself at the time. Absolutely. Well, as always, our little conversations leave me more and more fascinated because we keep discovering new things that well, have been hidden in plain sight. Sadly, we are out of time for this episode. If you haven't yet caught up on our last series, there is ample time for you to do so before the next episode comes out. Or get a copy of Marlowe's Complaint by Dr. Peter Hodges for an in-depth dive into our subject. In the meantime, we bid you goodbye until the next time when we discover what else is hidden in plain sight.